Well, hello there, ladies and gents. Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Anthony Kunkel on the line. Anthony is an ultra-marathon runner. He is a beast when it comes to endurance sports. We talk about his fueling strategy. We talk about how he recovers from these long runs and makes it a sustainable endeavor. We talk about all kinds of things, all things running. We talk about the shoes he wears. We talk about it all. So if you're interested in endurance sports, if you're interested in ultra-marathon running, this is your podcast. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show with Anthony. And we're live, Anthony. How are you, man? Real good, real good. Sun shining again, like it always is here, and I'm a little gimpy this week, but everything's good. Yeah, you got a you got an injury that you were telling me about, right? Yeah, I'm dealing with some kind of mystery. I mean, the the good news is I don't get running injuries. But then the bad news is when I get injuries, I can't just Google them or ask a physical therapist because it's like really odd, really strange stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once you once you don't, you know, once you're bulletproof on Achilles tendonitis or, you know, IT band problems or stress fractures or what have you, then the, you don't know. I mean, when something goes wrong, it's it's not you're no longer part of the, the 99 percenters there. And so your your problems are really odd. And so I have some little muscle like probably something that stabilizes my toes or, or um, maybe flexes my toes is just like totally feels like it's going to get torn off the bone this week. And so I'm, I'm getting some cross training in and do a little shakeout week. And then hopefully I'll be back to the grind next week. Well, I want to dive deep into this, man, because I don't know that much about ultra running, to be honest. Uh, you obviously Absolutely. know a lot about it. So kind of give us some background, man. Like what got you into running in the first place? Like just give me some backstory here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, you'll have to back me up because I, I definitely have surrounded myself with runners at this point in my life. I think when I was about 15 or so, I think I decided this is this is something I want to spend as much of my life doing as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, after well over a decade of that, I've, I think I've done it, you know, it's like talking to runners about running all the time. So back me up and, and, and clarify stuff as we need to, because I'll, I'll definitely dive into jargon. Um, uh, my my four years in exercise science as well. So I tend to forget that people (laughs) were not all gym majors, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, I think you do tend to self-select, right. And you gravitate towards stuff that, that you're good at. And the catch with, with running is that, especially as you get into the real long stuff, there's just an endless number of talents. I mean, there's, there's people that are totally built for it perfectly, but just have horrible fiber type or have high prevalence of injury or, you, know, you could you could have a really good ability to absorb oxygen and a really poor, you know, really poor metabolism or really poor control over your diet. Or you could just be a soft person, maybe, you know, where you, you just have a hard time, you know, drawing on drawing on some kind of strength beyond you. And so there's a lot of talents that, that get involved in as you go longer and longer. And I ran a bit in grade school at cross country mm-hmm. and then middle school. I just kind of played around it a lot of inline skating. Um like playing at skate parks, but also just getting to and from there. And that definitely helped me build a base. And I've always been a pretty, I don't know, easily obsessed person, I guess. My, my like father's side of the family, all the men and, and my, you know, me, me, my father and everybody on his side, there's a lot of just like addiction and alcoholism and just like really type A tendencies. Mm-hmm. So I think I grew up kind of respecting that part of me, you know, knowing that, okay, well, you can be a serious athlete and probably get somewhere or you can be a 
successful businessman and probably get somewhere or you know you can you can be an alcoholic and it's like I, I feel like that offer was kind of always subtly you know I wasn't able to articulate that as a 16 year old kid but I think I, I saw that that was kind of on the table for me and so you know re- respecting that it was nice to get into something and so before high school started I was kind of thinking West Point it's kind of thing in the United States Military Academy for the Army um, growing up you know, growing up, moving a lot, but my parents' families, independently of my parents, my, my families are all military. I mean, just loads, military, military, all over. And so, you know, when my father had a job and my, my, my mother, and my father aren't military, but when my dad had a job that involved moving every three years, they're like, well, yeah, that's normal. That's what people do. So mm-hmm. I was kind of like military brat schedule anyway, even though, you know, it wasn't military. And so kind of perpetually the new kid and, and always, always, you know, find something new and need something to identify with. And I, I, at some point I got it into my head that I really didn't like my circumstances. You know, people that were around me were just kind of coasting and it was, I don't know, it was, it was a premature struggle with nihilism probably of just like, you know, nothing matters and, and what, what do you do? And people are just wasting their lives and nobody's passionate. Nobody's, nobody's all in on anything. And I think the the West Point dream was largely just to separate myself from that. I figured if I got into something so rough and so selective that I would, you know, I, I'd be happy or something. I'd, I'd be around people that were all as obsessive and, and, you know, driven as myself. And, yeah, I think I think from there it was like, okay, I need a varsity letter. I, okay, I, I can try out for cross country and probably make probably make varsity right away. And so I did. And my program was a joke. It's not that I was good. I was like a, you know, 16 flat 5K runner um, by the end of high school. And so that's, that's fine. I mean, at, at the time, it felt like it sucked because I was in a really competitive area. And I just figured, man, I'm not even good. But then, you know, by senior year, I realized, no, on the national level, that's, that's really solid. That's like, I, you know, by the time I realized I could run D1, I had already let that dream die. So I never really wanted to run D1 and my coaching was so horrible in high school that I figured I didn't, I didn't want to do that and be under another coach. And I just didn't trust anybody. And at some point, like halfway through high school, I started reading a lot, like reading everything. And first it was like Roger Bannister, who was the first person to get under four minutes in the mile. And he was a total academic. He was like, you know, Hey, I've done all the data. There's no reason I can't break four in the mile. And so he just went at it. And that that was his attitude was everybody said, hey, you know, you're cocky, or hey, you're going to die, or hey, something, something's going to go wrong. You can't do that. He's like, you know, the writing's on the wall. I can do that. And that's kind of where I am right now with the 50-mile world record. But so from there, it was kind of like, okay, I can coach myself. And then at some point, you know, you realize you gravitate towards what you're better at. And I I was a much better 10K runner against the same runners postseason than I was 5K. And so I kind of just figured as it got longer, the durability mattered more and the, the, the ability to kind of play with your mind mattered more. And it was less about raw talent. And so right. I kind of gravitated towards that. And so, you know, a decade the, into that, here we are. The longest distances in like high school, like cross country, they don't ever exceed like a 5k really, right? Correct. Yeah. So what was your first foray into going beyond that? Like, was it just something like a local event that you signed up for and then found that you gravitated and you performed pretty well at it or, or how did that transition happen? Yeah, my local turkey trot um, south of Chicago was a 10K. And so I realized like, oh man, this guy beat me by 30 seconds over the 5K last weekend and now I beat him by three minutes over the 10K. It's like, what? how does that happen? 
And then uh, I figured I'd do a marathon at 18 and it went horribly wrong. I just, I didn't know anything. And so then a few weeks later, um, Zach Gingrich is the guy's name. And he was, he was living one town over from me and he's, he's a freaking legend in his own right. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to this race Huff and it's a 50 K and it was on trails, which I had never really run. And it was in the snow, which I, I'd never run in, in serious snow like that. And it was a 50 K. So it was a, it was, um, just a little bit longer than a marathon, mm-hmm. you know, about, about five miles longer than a marathon. And I was like, okay, well the marathon didn't go well. So I'll just use that as my last long run and I'll go do this 50 K. And it went equally horrible, but you know, six hours later I finished this 50 K and I crippled, but I definitely called it, okay, well that went horrible, but next time I, I know what to prepare for, you know, like I, I went there and I saw how, how things went and I learned some stuff and really just kind of caught the bug. And from there, just wanted to know, I mean, my driving force for the first few years wasn't that, you know, I was going to be the best or I was going to like win races or win national championships. I really just wanted to know what it felt like to run hard for that long, you know, to feel like you were psychologically to feel like you were racing for four hours you know what does that feel like it's 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 one thing to race somebody for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or down the block but to to be out there for hours and hours and hours i mean what, what does that feel like and that was really my driving force was just the the sensations and the psychology of of kind of going there you know yeah i feel like you know I, i've never run an ultra but i, I ran a marathon just on a whim and it's kind of crazy man like running distances i mean it, I feel like ultras, the ultra sport has definitely grown in popularity and momentum here lately because back in the day, it was like if you were in a marathon, that's like the upper echelon, like that's the elite. And now they just keep getting longer and longer and longer. And like the mental fortitude and the drive that goes into running a distance that long, I mean, it's totally a mind game. Absolutely. But I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's crazy. From like, a, from like a training and a conditioning and a fueling standpoint, what are some differences that – that you're seeing and incorporating, you know, with, with the the 10Ks that you used to run versus the 50Ks and beyond that you're running now? Yeah, I think, I think you kind of, you know, thankfully you, you figure it out as you go along, right? And things go, things go horribly wrong or um, maybe even they go right, you know, and you figure out what works too, but you kind of, it's trial and error and there's, there's not a lot of data and, you know, certainly in 2010, there was a lot less mentorship. I mean, I would have read any book that was out and there, there weren't any, not really. There were, you know, two or three of them. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, there wasn't a lot of guidance, which was good because you can kind of, you can kind of cut your own path and make your own way. And so I had, I had the blessing of, I, I was going through vocational school for personal training and nutritional counseling. And I had a two instructors actually that just said, man, you endurance guys are dumb. Like this, this whole high carb thing, like carbs, carbs, carbs is, is the dumbest thing ever. You guys, you guys are idiots. And he's like, all right, what are you talking about? And then looking at, at fat metabolism and get and diving into all this and, and then being that extreme type of person that would be drawn to this sport in the first place was, uh, you know, it's like, well, if I'm going to go high fat, like, let's just go ketogenic, you know, if, mm-hmm. if carbs, if carbs aren't everything I thought they were, then let's just get rid of them totally and see what happens. And so I had, you know, I started playing with the high fat, low carb stuff in, in late 2010, early 2011 and instantly like my mood lifted and it was probably like hormonal. I mean, even, even Mm -hmm. though you're, you're at a fragile age anyway, but just, just like health and wellness first, I mean, more than anything and realizing that I could go out and do these, you know, three hour, three hour events much more smoothly. And, and it was just game changing from there. And that, that, that opened up the world and the physical maturity of, of stacking in miles and, 
letting the weekly volume grow. I mean, like senior year of high school, I did a bunch of weeks at 60. First year out of high school, so this is 2011 now for me, I did a bunch of weeks at um, 80. And that was a good number for me. That 2011, 2012, leaving it at about 80 a week was, was a good place for me. And like a one-off week here or there at 100 miles. So we're talking weekly volume, so total miles running a week. And yeah, it was it was from there from there it kind of grows. It's like okay, well you know the guys at the tippy top are doing 200 miles a week or 180 miles a week. So I know at some point I got to do that. But physically, I'm just I'm gonna let my body mature and slowly take my time to get into that because you know if your peak age is 30 or 35, depending on who you are, maybe even 40 for these real real long races. And that's not even talking about like six day races where your peak could be 40 or 50 even when you start talking about, you know, 3000 kilometer races or that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so there, there's just so much into it. And so I, I kind of built this linear approach that said, okay, I'm going to build, I'm going to add 20 miles a week, you know, every winter, or every other winter for the next 10 years. And I'm going to see where that leaves me. And so now we're kind of at the point where, um, I've made, you know, just trivial gains after trivial gains each, each season, and rather the race, sometimes the race goes well, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you learn a big lesson. Sometimes you learn a small lesson. Um, sometimes you don't learn anything because everything goes right. And, you, and you, you win and it's effortless and everything's good. But, you know, to the outside world, it's looked like a rockier, you know, a, mo a more up and down approach than it has been. I mean, it's, it feels to me like it's been smooth sailing since I was about 19. So, like, with the, you know, with the, the training, few, I feel like a lot of people probably train. Or so, or so that I have to modify around, but. Oh, I lost you there for a second. What was that last thing you said? Yeah, you're good. What was that last thing you said? You oh, just, there. just weekly volume and long-term goals. Gotcha. I feel, I feel like a lot of people that aspire um, to do yeah. you know, ultra long-distance running, they just they go at it too quickly. They, they try to push themselves beyond what their, their muscular maturity would allow, and they wind up just having serious injuries sustained because like i didn't i didn't realize the peak like a lot of these runners that are performing at the highest level are in their 40s i didn't know that yeah yeah i mean especially like the next race i'm gonna do in late july july 22nd or the 23rd is there's gonna be an elite six day race that starts after i get off the track and that or the day after i get off and it's like that event will be thrown it'll be they'll it'll be bob hearn i think and joe fiji's will be throwing it down and bob hearn's like 55 i think joe fiji's is late 40s i'm pretty sure and it's like these guys are not throwing down in a master's division like these guys are the best in the world wow that's crazy and you think that's because they've just sustained that gradual improvement year after year after year like they didn't like they they just gradually scaled it up it wasn't a night and day uh you know change that almost i'm gonna run an ultra marathon i automatically have to start logging 100 plus miles a week yeah yeah it's definitely it's a certain amount of it is just physical maturity right like a, a 45 year old can go on an hour of sleep or 30 minutes of sleep for six days much easier than a 20 year old can you know and so yeah th there's a little bit of that going on for sure i mean that that's probably half of it really mm -hmm. is is just the physical maturity of being a little older and you know you gain more perspective i mean some of it is some of it is wisdom like tr the but by, by a true definition of wisdom is you've seen it enough times like you've hurt enough times and done it anyway and you just you just don't care anymore you're like this doesn't even register anymore and so i mean you can you can appreciate that in your world it's it's like when you know 
when you're doing a set of 10 or 20 squats and your heart's pounding out of your chest, it's like you, you go to a place where a certain amount of wisdom can save you from even having to consider how hard it is, you know? Yeah. And I think over a, over like a six day event or a 48 hour, a 72 hour event, you know, some of these events, it's like, you'll go 72 hours and you won't stop. I mean, you, you won't, you won't sleep. You won't change shoes. You won't in a perfect world. You won't stop. I mean, you won't stop to pee. You'll just piss yourself or, or what, or whatever. And it's like, you're going and going and going. I mean, you'll walk and eat and you'll just keep going. And so that's, that's pretty wild, man. It, it does blow my mind. Like I've been, I had Zach Bitter on the podcast and we were talking about, you know, some of the records he's broken and just like the, the pace, the distance, the time. I mean, it blows my mind what the human body is capable of from like an ultra running standpoint. Like it just seems inhuman, but I mean, it really is amazing. So like for you, you know, at what point does it start getting hard? Like at what point is, is, you know, breaching your comfort zone? Well, so I'm, I'm much closer to Zach in the ultra world than I am a lot of people that get a lot of attention, um, at least in America, where, you know, you have like, you have people that are doing 200 mile races or 100 mile races in the mountains. And it's, you know, where course record is 16 or 17 hours. That's like a totally different sport than the people that are doing six day events on the track or than the people that are doing, you know, thousand mile plus stuff, you know, thousand, mm-hmm. thousand kilometer distance kind of stuff like that, where it's sleep deprivation and just structural stability and, and other other logistical stuff that ends up mattering more than any kind of oxygen absorption or, or raw measures of fitness that we would measure in the lab at least. And so it's like, it's like a whole different, there's sports in this sport. I mean, a 50 K on the road takes me less than three hours on a, on a decent day. You know, that's, that's nothing compared to someone that's going to take 72 hours of sleep deprivation and food management and skin management and all that. Right. So it's like a totally different, different ball game. So with that in mind, what the point where it gets hard is different on each race. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've definitely found that, you know, I'm, I'm just now getting to my late twenties and 28 right now. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, that's, that's, you know, both because I've stacked up more training and because my body's a little more mature just on its own timeline that I will hopefully handle hundred K better than I ever have. But what I find is, you know, 40 miles, 45 miles is money, you know, about, about, five hours is an awesome day for me. I can, I can really, really race for a five hour event. Once you start trickling into like six hours, it, it weighs because it's really, really breaking down. But that said, you don't think about quitting in the last hour. You don't think about major problems in the last hour. You're going to make it. I mean, it's going to happen whether you slow down or speed up or, or whatever it is. It's not really, it's not that dark. It's more of a physical thing. It's more like running a 5k where it's like, you know, the pain's there and it hurts. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're just going to have to hold this screaming baby for an hour, right? You're just gonna have to be uncomfortable for an hour. And that's, that's just that. I mean, it's going to happen. Whereas the, the earlier section, usually somewhere, somewhere in the realm of 15, maybe 20 miles in to an event where you realize like, oh man, or maybe even the marathon mark as, as late as the marathon mark where you're like, dude, I feel like garbage. And it's like, well, yeah, dude, you just ran a marathon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like just because you're running two of them today doesn't mean, doesn't mean that running a marathon, especially a fast marathon, you know, sub three hour marathon is not going to hurt you. You know, just because you got it in your mind that you're going to run farther doesn't, doesn't detract anything from the, the raw objective reality of it. And so usually I have a point in that like 15 to 25 mile range, usually a little on the earlier end of that where 
you just like you're just hoping for an injury or you're just hoping for you know something to go catastrophically wrong because you you're intimidated you know you're intimidated by how much is left and and how how far you've come already and you feel like you shouldn't hurt as bad as you do but but you're going to i mean it's going to hurt it's not going to feel great all the time and usually once I can get over that, you know, I'll, I'll take a Vespa if you're familiar with them. Mm-hmm. I'll take a Vespa and, and then, you know, 20 minutes later, follow it with a, with a gel. And then, you know, all the calories are going and the ketones are flowing and all the cylinders are open by, by usually like mile 20, 22. And then I feel great. Then it's like, all right, we've come far enough that the body is just automatically doing its thing and much more flow state like. So usually the, the, the crux of it for me mentally is that earlier part. Once, once I can get into it, I'm, I'm less worried about it. Even, even when I'm not into it enough where I can start counting down, you know, let's, let's use a 50 miler as an example. You can't really start counting down until at least mile 35, maybe mile 40, you know, where there's, there's a, a reasonable run left, you know, like a 10 mile run is reasonable, you know, saying, Oh, okay. We've come 30 miles. Now we only have 20 miles left. Like you don't ever want to think that ever. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's why they say like when you're running a marathon, like if that's the the total distance you get the mile marker twenty, that's when like it really starts wearing on people mentally. Yeah, and physically, I mean, as you can appreciate, you know, it, once you're once you're two hours in and your your glycogen's tapped out, you can't eat quick enough to replace a hundred percent of the calories you're burning. I mean, you can't eat quick enough to replace half of them unless you're running really slowly. Yeah. So that's that's where the fat metabolism comes in. I mean the. The ability to really, really metabolize fat is absolutely king in in my book. For the people who aren't, you know, Zach, and I think Zach would be okay identifying with this too, is like me and Zach aren't talented. (laughs) Like if anything, I have more talent than Zach does probably. I mean, raw, measurable talent. But, you know, he's smart. He's tough as shit. I mean, that guy, like he's really gritty. I mean, seriously gritty. And you know, you can, you can overcome a lot of that just by being smart or by being disciplined and really playing with your diet and figuring out what, what works and what doesn't and getting a certain amount of, it's less about fat metabolism per se, and more about metabolic flexibility. If I, if I, you know, if there's a phrase that I gravitate to, if you're eating moderate carb, you can't burn fat at all. You know, if you're eating 40% of your calories a day from carbohydrate, your ability to metabolize fat is like nil, like negligible. Right. So at least like, you know, cyclical keto and things like that, even fasted runs, as we found out in some of the studies here, are the benefit is very, it's peanuts compared to really, really fat adapting compared to really, really getting, you know, 60, 70% of your calories from fat. And then a lot of the remainder from protein for at least certain periods of time, you know, a couple weeks in the off season, things like that. And then depending on your event will determine how much you need. But, man, that, that fat metabolism is absolutely king. Yeah, see, I, I don't – I mean, I've never run an ultra, obviously. I don't have that perspective. Um, but when I ran that marathon, like, I didn't I didn't do any training for it, which probably wasn't the wisest thing either. But I did it all fasted, and I didn't have any gels or I didn't have any, you know, carbohydrates throughout the entire run, um, nothing like that at all. But I never felt like I hit a wall from a fuel standpoint. I felt totally fine energy-wise. Uh completely fine I, I was hurting from like a conditioning standpoint like my feet were just not conditioned for putting those kind of miles in absolutely i've got a real bad over pronation man you, do you have any experience with that like are you are you probably much more structurally sound than me from a running standpoint but my over pronation just kills my ankles when i'm running yeah i'm not sure i mean you could you could play with running form and 
I tend to be much more onto the hippie end of things of like, you know, there's, there's a reason all your ancestors weren't eaten by lions or whatever, you know, starved because they couldn't catch the, the deer or the mammoth or whatever. It's like your feet are probably fine. And, you know, if, if, thankfully I'm not a doctor, so I can't, I don't have any skin in this game. I can't like lose my, my licensure for, for, you know, spouting hippie propaganda here, but man, your body's probably perfect. Your body wants to run. Your body is constantly struggling to, to be robustly healthy and bulletproof. And, and I believe that. And so I think we've, you know, pronation wasn't even a word, you know, outside of, outside of like phys labs at, at the, I mean, I guess not even phys labs at that point outside of anatomy and anatomy mm-hmm. phys until we had a way to correct it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't part of what runners talked about until we had shoes that quote unquote corrected it. So I would be interested to see, you know, balance or get you on a balance cushion or see, see, like, do you have arches? Are your feet flat? I'm pretty flat footed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I'd be interested to see what we could do over, you know, a two to three month period of, of building up some serious foot strength on you. Cause you definitely find that a lot of people can build an arch out of a flat foot. Some people can't, but you might even shrink your shoe size because your arch is, is pulling your, your bones all back together. And if you don't, at least you can strengthen some of those, some of those lower leg, you know, some of that proprioception and, and what have you going on down there. So what, what kind of exercise do you incorporate for targeting the foot specifically like that? Oh man, not enough. enough. (laughs) I think that's why I'm dealing with what I have right now. I I really think if I would have spent more time on just a, you know, the like memory foam kind of balance pillows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm a big fan of those. I, I think just, just spending a little bit of time standing on that or doing like a, like an RDL to a running stance. Mm-hmm. If you can, if you can visualize that, you know, touch, get, you know, go down, right hand touches the left foot that you're balancing on and then stand up into a, into a, like a running man and doing, doing movements like that to, to develop some glute activation while also building just a lot of proprioception in that lower leg and in, through the hip even. It's really hard to beat that. It's a very systemic, and it lets your body, it lets your nervous system take care, take care of things, and kind of tap into your own your own body's wisdom instead of trying to stick a band aid where it hurts. You know. On on that subject, I've found that like a lot of runners are, it's kind of like divided. A lot of runners are, you know, all for the fancy shoes with the correct, you know, correction points, like the, you know, the the cushions, all that stuff to to get everything balanced and fixed. Whereas a lot of runners gravitate towards the minimalist style shoes and gear where it just allows your body to do whatever it would naturally do. Definitely. Uh, that That's kind of what you're opting for as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure some of that is my own bias, right? I mean, I've kind of self-selected for this sport, you know, and, and my, like I said, there's a lot of talents in this sport, you know, in my case, the first talent that I have more than anything else is I'm freaking bulletproof. I mean, this, this modified week right here where I didn't want to take off, you know, 120 miles. I, I wanted to run through this. This is the third time that I've ever modified training in my life, at least in my adult life. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I'm, I've missed whatever, six weeks of training out of well over a decade is what we're getting at. And it's like, so clearly I'm bulletproof. I mean, I, I've known that I've known that I can train with anybody in the world basically, because I'm just, I'm durable. My, my body will always come back for more. And then I, you know, you, you bring in, you bring in a lot of fat adaptation and that brings that to the next level already. And then you bring in certain um, like very intentional carbohydrate in there and that brings it to another level as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm certain that I'm a bit biased just because my personal experience has been that I'm just bulletproof. And so that, that probably leads to some of what you're describing of 
some athletes are all about, you know, the big chunky hokas and some athletes are all about the super minimal stuff. I'm sure a certain aspect is that, but I I don't know. I mean, there has to be a truth somewhere in there. And I tend to think it's kind of like the metabolic flexibility question of I can always take a pair of hokas, take them out of the box and put them on at mile 70 of a hundred miler. And if my feet are screwed, those are going to help still. Mm -hmm. I can't do the same with the opposite. You know, if my, if my low back hurts, cause I've been in hokas, I can't change out of hokas and put on Luna sandals and then just like, and then be fine. Right. It doesn't work that way. So it, it is almost a metabolic flexibility thing of as you get older, as you get more beat up during an event acutely, as you, you know, what, what have you, you can always add more cushion. You can always add more shoot. You can always add more correction and orthotics. You can always add those. People back can't take as much to take them away. And that's kind of my angle with shoes and footwear and in really life, I guess, right? Is, is strip everything away until, until it's absolutely the minimum that you can get by. And then, you know, as you get older and you want to be more comfortable, then you add things. That's a good point. I've been trying to do that uh, with, with my footwear. I mean, I run pretty much every day just as a not like any hardcore training just as a way to meditate more than anything but yeah. i'll try and alternate days with like a, a more cushioned shoe versus more of a minimalist shoe that way my body doesn't get acclimated to the easier of the two you know oh man that's beautiful not. that's that's like the first bit of advice that i give people is alternating shoes not not just like a trail shoe on trails and a road shoe on roads but alternate shoes and the more miles you're running the more shoe you need i mean i will do i really like running twice a day mm-hmm. so I will, I will seriously do six different pairs of shoes in three days. So let's talk about shoes, man. Cause I mean, that's pretty much the gear of the running world. What, what do you recommend? Like, I guess it depends somewhat on the person's, you know, anatomy, but like, what are, what's a good all around beginner shoe? Um, I, I like ultras lineup still. I think they've gotten a little bit clunkier and, and appealing to, to where the market's going, which makes sense, but I, I don't know if that's a, step in the right direction necessarily mm-hmm. ultra is a good company um they've they've lost their roots i guess a little bit as well but you know that they're they're a great place to start i think still for most people um being being a zero drop platform and having having some cushion on them still that's a really good place to start for a lot of people but yeah i mean there, there's nothing wrong with going into a running specialty store and, and seeing what they what they tell you and getting those shoes into the rotation but I'm all about taking shoes a thousand miles, two thousand miles, just beat the hell out of them, and uh, you know, as quick as that shoe changes and loses support, your body's changing too. You know, over the course of three hundred miles, your body's adapting way more than that shoe's changing. That's a so, good point. Yeah, having having a lot of different shoes and rotating them in and out and learning, I think learning what gives you certain pains and what gives you certain relief. And, and really specifying that, putting putting a, a label on that or keeping track of your shoes in a running log and seeing, hey, you know, I had, I've, I've had stuff like that where it's, man, I had posterior tibial pain for, for like two years. And I eventually figured out that it's, there were two pairs of shoes and every time, and it was like 48 hours after I wore them, I would have posterior tib pain. Now, 48 hours after, I might be in any number of 10 or 15 different pairs of shoes. So if I only logged that and wasn't really looking at it, I wouldn't have known. And then once I figured that out, boom, I took, took a season out of those shoes and there we were, we were totally square. And then I haven't had pain since. And it's like the, the meticulous logging of everything. That's one of those things that, that will get me more training that will net me more training and then will make me a faster runner in long term. And it has nothing to do with anything I can measure in the lab. Right. So yeah. that's, that's kind of one of those angles too. And, and yeah, I mean, 
you start in one spot and you figure out what you like, but there's nothing wrong with, that's probably the most marketable view that I have is <laughs> there's nothing wrong with having 10 different pairs of shoes that are drastically different. And then every six months, just take a look at your quiver of shoes and say, you know, yeah, I've gotten a little softer. Yeah. I've gotten a little minimal this block and let's, let's throw in, you know, let's make sure the next two pairs of shoes are, are the opposite of that and balancing it all out. I like it. I like it. You ever run in those like five finger super minimalist shoes? Absolutely, man. I, I just beat up a pair of mine that I got. Do those not like give you crazy shin splints or anything? Um, unless what I have is a shin splint right now, just a crippling elite version of shin splints. I don't, I don't know that I've ever really had that since like high school. That tends to be a, tends to be a beginner problem or when you read begin. So if I'm going to have shin pain like that, you know, compartment syndrome or, um, what, what we would all categorize as shin splints, all that stuff, it'd be like in the next week after I take this week out of running, it'd be, you know, Monday or have a good workout next Wednesday, hopefully if everything feels good. That's, that's when you end up a little bit more receptive to that stuff. But because I've maintained my volume so much, you know, like I said, this is the third time ever that I've had to modify training because I just maintain my sick volume all the time. I don't ever have injuries like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. What about like icing or using like sun or anything like that for injury prevention? You do any of that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Contrast, contrast is impossible to beat. Um, I think they can, I think while the scientists argue about the benefits of, you know, icing or heat or whatever, or, or try to find the mechanisms behind it, the athletes that are using it are going to keep winning. So, so what's that you, protocol look like for you? Like you finish a run, what, what, what happens? So I use sauna space. They're the best. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'd like to have a more precise or articulate word, but they're the best. I mean, they're, they're measured to be no EMF. And, you know, electromagnetic frequencies, because that's the problem is a lot of these infrared saunas, it's like you're sitting in a damn microwave. Mm -hmm. You're just, you're just getting baked and not in a good way. And, uh, <laughs> not in a good yeah, way. so they, they measure all their stuff. They measure all their stuff so that it's grounded and zero EMF. And then, and then it's very, very carefully measured to be the right, the right spectrum of light. And so I was instantly drawn to them. And, and at this point I know, I know Brian, the founder pretty well. We're, we're definitely friends beyond any professional matter. And, uh, his story is pretty cool as well. And I've been working with them since, I mean, since just about since they've existed as people know them now, at least. And so I, I use their, their Faraday, which is a, it's a total EMF block. It's like, it's like you're, I don't know what to compare it to. It's like you're in the bottom of the ocean, right? You're, you're grounded and you have the infrared light. That's all very selectively chosen and the visible light hitting you. And then the whole box that you're in, the whole pocket sauna, as they call it is, uh, EMF blocks. So the whole thing is a, as a Faraday cage. So you're not getting, you're not getting electromagnetic frequencies in there and the whole box is grounded. So you're able to really go in there and kind of reset from the modern world. So I use the hell out of that. And then my setup at home is I can clip that four panel, that four bulb infrared panel out of that pocket sauna and clip it into an incline trainer. And on the back of my incline trainer, I have one bulb on the front that hits your quads and your knees. And then I have the four bulb in the back and then I have an incline trainer. And then I have a single, if you can visualize all this, I have a single untreated cotton drop cloth over the whole thing so that I can get, it's about 85 degrees, maybe 90 mm -hmm. ambient. But because it's infrared, it's just baking you from the inside out. So it's like a cool day in Death Valley there or like a like a cool day up at really high altitude or a hot day at high altitude, I guess, because where the sun's really strong. And that's, that's my big thing is I am obsessed with the heat and I have been forever. And I, I think that's, most of the reason why I haven't been injured since I've been training even more 
is the heat that I use. And recently this block, I've settled into a protocol of I'll sit either in pocket sauna or just on my, on my red mill. I'll just sit in there and get the, get the infrared on my quads, on my knees and get it on my backside and on, on my glutes. And then I'll turn and get my, my thyroid, my, my heart, my, uh, my gut, my nads. And there's benefits for all of these things. So get a nice little bacon there. And then right as I'm about to start, you know, start a single drip of sweat, basically I'll hop out of there and then go get my morning session. And I feel amazing. And it, it's been, it's been the most pain-free block that I've had truly until this just freak like lower leg thing recently. So you do and, that as a warm up, basically. And then you go on your run afterwards. Yes. And, and there's a you... lot of research on that, like the prophylactic effect mm -hmm. of you're, you're getting all that going, but you can absolutely, you cannot beat near infrared. I mean, if you're not using it, it, it's, it's got ridiculous research behind it. You know, Juve is the big company that pushes all the, all the scientific literature, but it's not like the literature's on their product and their product is just okay. It's fine. But sauna space is far superior. And then do you like ice after the run? So you do the, the heat therapy before run and then ice or what? Typically, typically I'd be, it'd be sauna for, you know, 10 to 25 minutes beforehand. And then I'll go out and get my run and then I'll get home. And in the summer when it's hot here, we have Junction Creek right behind my house. So maybe 120 feet off my porch is a creek that's fresh runoff. You know, we're talking, we're talking 40 degrees Fahrenheit or so and fresh mountain runoff. And the hotter it is, the quicker that runs and the colder that is. So I'll, I'll get my, my legs in there and maybe, maybe baptize in there after a run. And then if I'm freezing, I'll come back in and sauna more. And then when I'm sitting around the house, I typically have a bulb on me, you know, at least maybe, maybe six hours a week or so. Um, certainly, certainly more than three hours a week, just passive. You know, if I'm answering emails or something, I'll get out their photon, which is a single, a, a one bulb unit of, of near infrared. And I'll bake that on whatever my most concerned area is. So right now I'm baking my lower leg. You know, when we get off of this with this podcast, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be like, I'll check an email, I'll do some reading, and uh, maybe have a meditation. And, and I'll sit there with my my broken part right now with a with a bulb pointed on it. And it's it's huge. I mean, the the change in turnaround time. I'd love to have a, a skeptical doctor take a look at me or or something like that. I mean, I've had physical therapists tell me this is good weeks and then sure enough four weeks later i'm a hundred percent or i'm you know winning a race mm -hmm. what about like uh like mobility like stretching and stuff like that do you do a lot of stretching or anything i'm a pretty mobile person so no i, I tend to be i tend to walk around way more mobile than i need to be for my sport and so if i was a really tight person i i could see incorporating a certain amount of that but i don't think there's a there's a benefit once you're already mobile i mean i i did some martial arts growing up and I've just always, I did some gymnastics for quite a few years. And so I've always been naturally kind of mobile beyond those two. And so I don't, yeah, I, I, I will stretch something if it needs to be stretched. You know, if it really, if it's one thing that's, that's tense or tight or, you know, hip flexors, I might stretch. I do a lot of like mashing, you know, the cross mm -hmm. ball and I'll use a car buffer and, uh, I use a so right, which I don't know if you've used one of those. They're pretty yeah, sick. They're those, pretty are, those are pretty impressive. Super simple, yeah. but they, they're effective. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll use that for like active release on just about anything, and then uh, I do a little bit of like voodoo flossing and that sort of thing. But no, no stretching, no, no dynamic drills, no um, nothing really where I'm targeting range of motion. 
All right, let's dive into nutrition, man. I'm curious to see what like a typical day of eating is like with you putting this this type of volume into the runs. Like, what what are you typically eating from like a macro standpoint, but also just like a sheer caloric standpoint? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to know. I tend to have an inverse relationship with calories and and training volume acutely. Mm -hmm. Meaning, on the days where I'm doing, you know, thirty or 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 more miles across the day, I will have very few calories because you get all the ketones flowing and all the fat cells are open and you know all your receptors are, are at the surface and i'm just not hungry and then beyond that it's like i need to train again later so i don't want to feel lethargic and stuffed so i tend to have a, a kind of inverse relationship where my day's off or my days where i'm real low just a, a, a treadmill session in the morning and a, a maybe a shakeout in the evening mm -hmm. those are my days where i'll just eat and eat and eat and i might, I might have a 4500 calorie day and i don't track it very very meticulously at all anymore but i've tracked it enough in the past to know that that's about the range and then you know i, I seriously might have a heavy training day that's less than a thousand calories i mean e easily less than a thousand calories so the range is huge but yeah i mean uh when i'm when i'm what i call monk mode when i'm just repeating the day and every day is just groundhog day right i will do I'll wake up, I'll do my morning run and that's on, that's on water on a liter of water and maybe a little bit of salt. And then depending on the day, I might have pre-workout or, you know, beets or something, something along those lines, just some, something to help me through the workout. And I use a bunch of different things and, and cycle them to make sure I don't have tolerance to anything. I'm not a daily coffee drinker or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And then I'll get my morning run in and that might be, you know, a shakeout on the, on the red mill or, or a, you know, an easy six miler or an easy 10 miler, or it might be, it might be a little bit more epic. And then I'll get home and typically I'll have, I'll have sardines is, is a big staple of mine. I mean, it's hard to beat the nutritional value of sardines and just eat them straight out of the can. And I eat a lot of eggs and I'll do, um, I'll do my shake. I mean, it, anybody that follows me on Instagram has, has seen my shake at least a few times and it changes a little bit as the seasons go by, but it's got loads in it. I mean, right now we're dealing with creatine and about three grams of cordyceps. If you're, if you're mm -hmm. familiar with that one, yeah, about three grams of cordyceps a day and then about a gram of lion's mane a day and then a gram of, or half a gram or more of thrive six, which is a, just a six mushroom blend. And this is all by fresh cap and they're, they're an awesome company as well. And so no the, crazy like pasta loads or anything. No, no, definitely not. So, I do, I do like my carbs. If I'm gonna do them, I do like them in the evening. Mm -hmm. And like this, this block I've been doing, like I'll do, I'll do like a cup of rice, like uncooked rice, like a cup of rice. So like I don't, I don't even know how many that is cooked. You know, quite a bit. But I, I like to sit somewhere around 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrate a day, and that's really the only macro that I measure with any consistency or any precision at all. Mm -hmm. Um. At this point, I've been doing it for long enough. You know, like I said, I, I started playing with the high fat game in 2010 or before 2011 got here. And so, yeah, that's at, at this point. I mean, I know I know when my staples are like my kefir shake and, you know, I have my my levels data, which is a constant glucose monitor. I have my constant glucose monitor data. If anything, my kefir shake drops my blood sugar. Mm -hmm. So it's I mean, there's no I mean, I'm, I'm fermenting this milk until it's dinner. I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing left of this milk. So that, that's my base for my shakes. And then it's whey, and I might even have grass-fed butter powder in there from Garden of Life or, 
or you know just just a, a huge heaping of mushrooms in there then and so yeah it's it's very 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 low carb throughout the first part of the day and then in the evening i like you know i, I might have i'm a huge fan of dark chocolate i've enjoyed some rice just because it goes well with with meals and i can lather it in grass-fed butter um you can't beat that and then yeah if, I, if i'm going to use carbs I, I tend to go towards towards the sweeter end i mean I'll opt for a sweet potato covered in butter, but I, I really don't have any qualms with like more sugary options. I mean, I have no problem if, if it's a day and I'm like ringing up food and I had a workout this morning, I have no qualms about like grabbing a Snickers bar midday or, you know, early afternoon and getting in there. As long as I've had my nutrition first and my, um, you know, hit, hit your fat first and then hit your micronutrients, you know, right behind that, then I have no problems with, you know, I don't, I don't think my liver knows the difference, right? Well, if you're logging hundred plus miles a a week, I mean, you're probably, you're probably, you know, just continually in a state of somewhat ketosis because I mean, you're not really holding in any glycogen stores for any length of time. That's the idea too, is, and and I think that's why I've settled in the numbers that I have, right? If, if the average office worker can be, you know, everybody uses 50 grams and they say, oh, well, you know, you're they get dogmatic about it. Like, Oh, well, you're not, you're not keto because you're doing 200 grams a day or a hundred grams a day. And it's like, well, yeah, but I'm also running almost 20 miles a day. Or, you know, I might, I might have a day regularly where I'm doing 30 miles or more. And that's, I'm not screwing around. Like some of that is some serious intensity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, I think you've seen some of it on, on Instagram. Where it's like, there's, there's a lot of five and a half minute miles going on these days. And that's, that's some pretty solid intensity, especially when you add an altitude or, you know, this, this whole training block, I've averaged somewhere around 9,500 feet of gain a week, which is, you know, nothing by mountain runner standards, but it's a crap ton by road runner standards, which is the races I'm, I'm leaning towards right now, or the next race is on a track. Right. And all that adds intensity. You know, if, you, if you're running uphill on a gravel road at, at 8,000 feet, you're burning carbs. I don't care who you are. There's like, you're, you're going to be burning some carbs. So even if I'm only burning 20% of my calories from carbs or 10% of my calories from carbs, which is impressive if that's the case. And that's, that's about what it is. I mean, I know my data and that's still a lot, you know, if you're doing, if you're doing 20 miles a day and burning 20 times 20, you know, that's, that's no joke. So 20, yeah, 20 times 20 divided by five. I mean, that, that's a hundred grams of carb burnt. Mm-hmm. So to get me into the normal ketogenic range of, you know, 40, 40 grams a day or what have you, 50 grams a day of effective, then I'm, I might be, I might be doing 150 grams a day for extended periods. And that's as ketogenic for me as 40 is for someone else. Yeah, it's definitely all relative. I I would be curious to see, like, I don't know, I've got this theory that if you just totally, you know, bypass the carbs altogether, your body just adapts to what you're you're providing it. Um, So, like, I wonder how your body would respond if you just, you know, took them out entirely and then gave your body time to adapt to having zero carbs, basically, what that would have an impact on with regard to the ultras. I've done it. I mean, my, my first, my first few races after going truly, truly ketogenic were legitimately ketogenic races. I mean, I was, I was 20 grams a day or or maybe 30 grams a day through nut butters and stuff Mm -hmm. um, of effective carb for, sincerely years i mean more more than a two-year period um 2000 i'm i'm horribly unbound by time um (laughs) probably probably 2000 yeah 2012 ish i'd have to pull up the running logs or something but i mean i i was doing 
I was doing 200 grams of carb a week for, for years. I mean, for a really, really long time. And that's with training hundred miles a week, a lot of the time and then doing ultras. But I just found that the, the strategic carb really does. I don't know if it's, if it's the insulin or if it's like general governor where your body says, Hey, there's plenty of energy. So we can, we can allocate resources to recover fully or, or what have you, or where exactly this, you know, this mechanism lies, but it works. I mean, the, the strategic carbs are next level. That's interesting. It's interesting. I At least noticed. for the real, real long stuff. I mean, you know, you can't, I, I'm lean enough and you can't store enough carbs to get you through like a, a 50 miler when you're really running hard. And it's better that you have those carbs. So if have bias, you know, on the genetic level at this point, you know, not just, not just the enzymes, the mitochondria, but on the genetic level of gene expression, if you have the base for fat metabolism, you can bomb some serious carbohydrates and all they're going to do is sit in your system until you need them. So all your, you know, your uphills will be a little smoother. Your brain will be a little sharper. Your mile 40 to mile 50 will go a little better and you'll have to eat less during. And that's a big one too, is you could carbs help, you know, at the, at that top end, especially the, the carbs still help. And it's the metabolic flexibility that we're looking for. So the, you know, the, the standard wisdom in ultra running is, 250 to 350 calories an hour that's a ton i mean i don't want to eat i want to run you know mm-hmm. i want to be free i don't want to have to carry those calories or plan for those calories whereas you know guys like guys like me or guys like zach i mean zach zach's been eating even less than i have been these last few years it seems and i've been trying to increase it he's been trying to decrease it, it looks like but he's also getting into the longer stuff you know 100 miler it makes sense to burn a little bit more fat than you would for a 50 miler because a 50 miler you could, you could be a little quicker and a little dirtier for the for a five hour event or, you know, less than five hour event, hopefully. So getting, it's still only like 80 calories an hour at most. And that's real, real nice. And that's just enough to keep it sharp and topped off and let your body know, Hey, we're safe. We're good. We're fed and we can hammer. This is interesting, man. I don't, I don't, I don't know that much about, you know, the body from a physiological standpoint with the, with the long endurance sports. Um, I want to learn more about it because I, I'm, I've got these theories. I want to test these things out, but like it's totally outside my normal wheelhouse. I mean, with bodybuilding, like I've I've gone virtually zero carb, and I haven't noticed any any loss in performance whatsoever. Um, but I don't know how much that translates over to the you know the endurance world. It's just totally different spectrum. Yeah, I think I think what you'd run into with a lot of endurance athletes is you might not need the carbs for race day, but you will need them for training. So. You know, when you, if you, if you're going for like a 5k, a 5k runner is going to have enough glycogen in there to perform well. And once you fat adapt to probably perform to, to basically hundred percent of their capacity, may, maybe hundred percent of their capacity, especially when you control for things like weight. I mean, if you can, if you can drop a few, you know, two, three pounds of water weight, that's huge for a mm-hmm. runner. And especially, you know, a track runner, short distance runner. So something like that might, might come into play, but then some of the training is just so glycolytic. That if your body detects, hey, because your body's conservative, right? If your body detects, hey, we're not going to make it through 10 by a mile at this pace or 10 by a kilometer at this pace, it's it's going to start slowing you down when it might not need to just because it's conservative. So uh, some carbohydrates extra on there is, is probably, I would think, unavoidable for the tippy top level, but it, it would be interesting. I think the, the question you run into is how much fat metabolism do you lose for, say, you know, two carb ups a week, you know, probably a lot. How, how much do you lose for one carb up a week? You know, how, how long do those carbs stay in your system? 
So, I mean, that's, that's where living in the future has some perks, right? I mean, we, we have access to like constant glucose monitoring and we're real close to having a lot of things that are just much more easily accessible and, and privatized. So yeah, we'll yeah. Know. That, that's an interesting point, man. Cause like, like you said, there's, there's, there's so much give and take and like, we just, I don't know. And like, when you look at the research and all the studies done, like nobody's going to really be able to have the, the access to, you know, these participants that are willing to go through a legitimately long period of keto adaptation to really tap into what that research would illustrate. So it's yeah. kind of like a catch 22 on all fronts. I felt like I was getting benefit for easily a year. I mean, even like six months in was better than three months in. 100%. And, and 12 months in was better than six months in. And that was kind of eye opening for me. Yeah. And I mean, so, for me, like yeah. I've, I've been doing this now strictly, you know, strictly keto for five or six years. And it's, it's so much more significant and obvious what I'm feeling and experiencing now than what I was, you know, six months in, one year in, two year in, three year in. And like people, they just assume that they're, you know, at the pinnacle, at the zenith of their level of keto adaptation, they've only been doing it for two weeks. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> hey, I peed ketones out one time, so I'm I'm good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Even even on the race day, I mean, I felt I felt like the the gels that I was taking on race day were hitting me harder. Mm-hmm. And that's huge. I mean, normally you take a gel and it's hundred calories, you know, it's twenty five grams of carbohydrate. And within five minutes you feel great. And this is for a standard car burner. And within 15 minutes, you're like stable at best. And by, by 25 minutes or so, you're hungry. I mean, you're actively hungry. I mean, you're, you're, you're building and building and building that blood sugar because you're consuming so much that it's actually going up. You know, you're exercising so your blood sugar is elevated. And then you're eating carbs so your blood sugar is elevated. And then you're, you're just like building and building and building this blood sugar until your brain says, dude, we don't want we don't want a 130 blood sugar right now. Mm-hmm. So, so it'll hit that insulin out and then you're screwed. I mean, at that point you're, you can't burn fat when you got insulin going. And then you're, you're having, you think, man, I feel like garbage. I must be bonking. So then you eat more carbs and then you get more insulin and then you're just on a downward spiral until hopefully you finish the race or you, you drop out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I, I can't imagine how anybody that is knowledgeable at all with all the research that's out there, that's just doing a standard, standard, you know, running, like if they're not leveraging the power of tapping into their stored fat for fuel, it's just, it's just, they're suiting themselves in the foot. Yeah. Well, it's not marketable. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit more marketable now because there's at least like low carb products and, and, and there's something to sell at least now, but that's a hard one, right? I mean, even, even if someone's eating a keto brick a day, right, that's peanuts compared to selling them six meals a day, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's like zero still. So the selling people the ability to burn their own body fat, you know, you're, that's why you're seeing so many exogenous ketone supplements is people are really trying to market that and sell that. But in the end of the day, it's you, it's you and you, and you need to take, you need to cover your bases in a sustainable, you know, hopefully delicious way because we're wired to like food. You shouldn't have to hate life for the rest of, you know, for the rest of your life. And yeah, I think, I think that's what's holding it back is it's just not marketable. It's so much better to sell somebody you know, if gels are $2 a piece and you're selling somebody four of them an hour for their events and then you're telling them they have to train with them, you're getting that person on the hook. I mean, that's a that's a lot. Yeah, it, it it's true for sure. That's why it's so cool. Like, I don't know, I've, I've really just taken an interest in I – and mean, that's why I love natural bodybuilding. It's like let's strip away all the nuance. Let's just go to your core and see what you can do optimally with nutrition and training alone. 
and then really pinnacleize that and you just feel so it's liberating because you don't feel like you're you're you know just stuck tethered at the heel to all these different supplements and gels and you know anabolic steroids like you don't need all that stuff yeah i love it i love it well what you got in the pipeline man what's the horizon got for you so we got a let's see some more body work on this on this freaking lower leg that's first step man yeah we got a we got a guy in town uh durango movement and he he is a freaking witch doctor man if i get you out here to visit for a little traincation we'll, we'll get you a session with him the guy the guy is i mean i go in there and just like shrug my shoulders at him he's like all right lie down and i get out of there and i'm like you don't know how you did it and it's like i'm so i'm such a skeptic and such an academic like i don't, I don't buy all this hippie crap but it's like man the guy's a freaking witch doctor, dude. The guy's so good. Mm-hmm. So I got to fix this leg. That's that's first before I do anything. I'm, I, I can't even be a person until I fix this thing. But it feels way better today after a session yesterday. Nice, and, nice. Yeah, and then we got – I'm actually – haven't seen my parents in a while. I got them coming in town. And then we got a camp coming. Um, July 6th of the 12th, I got a bunch of people coming up just to, just to traincation at my place. And – you know, we got recovery boots at the house and we got muscle scrapers and we got, you know, the so right and we got we got the the creek right in the backyard and the sauna in the house and it's a perfect place to train because I've I've demanded and I've needed a perfect place to train, so I've created one. So I really, really enjoy sharing that with people. And it's a it's a donation only thing. I mean, as of right now it's zero dollars in my pocket for all this. So as of right now it'll cost me money, but um I'm gonna have somewhere around 15 people up here traincation and we'll have some people set up tents in the back and we'll have some cops set up in the extra bedroom and some people set up in the family room and just take over my house for a week and uh just let them enjoy the mountains and the cool what the cool mornings or you know cold overnight and the nice the nice high altitude sun and a little little traincation here and and where are you located again i'm in durango colorado so i'm way way southwest colorado four corners um i'm actually like i'm about halfway between denver and phoenix Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that is the perfect place, man. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, I, I can be to Vegas with a short drive. I can be to Denver with a, with a reasonable drive. I can be to Phoenix with a reasonable drive. Salt Lake City. You know, I can be in the desert, like true proper desert with canyons and red rock in, in 45 minutes. I can be up in the mountains where there's where it's alpine and the trees can't grow in, in 20. And, I mean, I can run to those places, right? It's, 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 it's a hell of a playground. Yeah, man. I mean, that's like the ideal ultra marathon you know training ground that's 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 cool that you're bringing those people in too that that's like getting the community together getting the collaborative effort like that's what it's all about absolutely absolutely and it's just it's so enriching it'll help me through my training and help them through theirs and and yeah there's a there's a place chimayo is the largest largest pilgrimage site i want to say in the western hemisphere probably but certainly in north america and they get whatever it is, tens of thousands of people there every year. And this isn't any significant weekend or anything. I'm going to do it at the end of this month. But I'm going to do, I've, I've considered doing the pilgrimage route from my house. And it's it's almost 200 miles. So it would be a little bit over 200 miles with getting to stops and places where I could sleep every day. But I'm going to do that at the end of this month. Some modification of the route. There's a scenic byway that goes from Taos, New Mexico, to Chimayo, New Mexico, which is where it is. And it's this old... Um, catholic church and it's like pueblo style i mean beautiful beautiful spot and i just kind of think like i don't i have a hard time putting faith in really anything which you could probably tell with this interview but uh yeah i think if enough people 
draw power from a place, then it, it gains significance, right? We're, we're imbuing it with power that whether it had it or not, we're, we're, we're creating something. Totally. So I just, being that it's basically in my backyard as far as things go, I got to do that pilgrimage route. So I'll probably cut it to like 50 to 100 miles. But I'm going to go run across the Southwest for a few days at the end of this month. And that's that's the next cool adventure that'll be, you know, people will see media from on, on social and, and all that. But that's there's actually a route we mapped out. It was like 60 miles. And it starts at a big, the biggest Buddhist temple in this area with a, with a big gompa and, you know, prayer flags and the whole nine yards. And that tends to be a little closer to my to my what I can buy into. And it'd be fun to start at that Buddhist temple and then run to Chimayo. I mean, that would that'd be some kind of fun spiritual, you know, symbolic. I don't know. The world needs that kind of energy right now. I think. Yeah, totally, man. You're gonna be documenting all this on like Instagram. Yeah, yeah. So I have a media person, and she's gonna be she's gonna be crewing me and make sure I don't make sure I don't starve or turn into a raisin out there. And uh, I don't know if we'll crash in the car or or set up a tent each night. There's a lot of public land on this route we were eyeing. And maybe we'll couch surf it. Somebody offers, and we'll we'll see what happens. We'll just let the universe take care of us, basically. And yeah, we'll we'll make a little short film for it, and then we'll be dropping Instagram stuff, and that'll be at the end of this month. So that'll be really really pretty. Very cool, man. Well, I'm I'm excited to see that for sure. Where where can people go to to follow you and and follow along the journey, man? Instagram's the preferred. That's that's been what I've been what I've been diving my teeth into right now. So that's at Anthony Kunkel. That's K U N K E L. We can we can drop him a link in there as well. Yeah, yeah, I'll put that link in the show notes. Well, sweet man, I'm excited for you, and I definitely want to keep in touch and follow along because it's something that that interests me for sure. Even though I'm no runner, it's cool seeing what the human body is capable of, and, and cool seeing you you know bust through these plateaus. Yeah, I think it's the best kind of energy for you. I mean, any any runner I think can benefit from dealing with certainly the like hippie end of the elites of the people who are really when you have somebody. And, you know, the ultra running community is doing our part on both ends of here, positive and negative. But there's a lot of like very harsh energy out there of, you know, I was a weak little pansy and I crushed myself and now I'm bulletproof. And it's like, I just don't think that's the right message. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think I think that's very harsh. And I think people can can get the same results out of being gentle with themselves. And this this soft approach, I really think can can move some mountains. And so, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think it's I think it's good for you to be around to put yourself in around some of these ultra runner types because you'll you'll pick up some mental groundwork that would have that would have taken you years to to get by and you'll just come out of the gates with it. So I love hopefully it, man. that has value to people. Shoot, yeah, we'll we'll keep spreading a positive message, man, and keep putting those miles in. Yeah, yeah, maybe we can talk after the fifty miler. Hey, I'm let down. Go, let me go run. The goal is the top five all time. So. The goal is to put world record on the table for myself for the next for the next year with this next performance. So we'll see how it goes in late July. Well, you get that leg healed up, man. Like I said, you're bulletproof. So keep on keep on grinding. You'll make it happen. Heck yeah, man. See you, brother. Talk soon.